Welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. What you're about to hear was originally recorded and broadcast for Pythagoras's Trousers, a Radio Cardiff science show and podcast. You can hear the full show and listen to past episodes at pythagoras-trousers.co.uk. Well, it's been another exciting month in astronomy, and uh, I'm joined again by Ed Gomez. Hello, Chris. First of all, Ed, uh, there was something that hit the news uh, in sort of mid to late February, uh, which has been this asteroid that passed by the Earth. I know you're on the radio talking about this. Uh, What was this story all about? Yeah, so this story was uh, there was an asteroid that had the rather uh, unexciting name of 2000 EM26 that passed allegedly very close to the Earth. It actually passed two million miles away from the Earth, which is about nine times further away than the Moon is. So it's not that close. Uh, It's also uh, not anywhere near the closest approach we've had. Uh, About a year ago, we had a very close asteroid uh, that was actually within a couple of days of uh, of the anniversary of this new one was. Uh, that was called um, 2012 DA14, and that came uh, within about 17,000 miles of the surface of the Earth, which is within the orbit of geostationary satellites, which we use for GPS tracking and that sort of thing. That was significantly closer, and that was a a year ago. This one is uh, 2 million miles away, so it's an awful lot further, but uh, a lot of the newspapers latched onto it. Uh, This asteroid was interesting because it was discovered uh, almost exactly 14 years ago. Uh, The 2000 in its name refers to the year that it was discovered, Uh, but it was lost for a long time. And so we we had this this near miss. Uh, But actually, there was a a, a closer near miss two days after this that none of the newspapers reported um, by uh, another asteroid. And um, that passed like half the distance between us and this this supposed near-miss asteroid. So that, that was actually um, about a million miles away or, or four times the Earth-Moon distance away from us. So, so actually, it's pretty far in terms of actual distance. In, in cosmic terms, it's pretty close, but then again, space is pretty big. So, so these asteroids do come close fairly often. It's just a case of ha- actually appreciating which ones uh, really are Uh, getting very very close yeah that's right this one was given the status of potentially hazardous uh, which is why they uh, the newspapers probably picked up on it it means that it's it has um, a a size of probably about 100 to 150 meters in diameter and it comes within 20 earth moon distances of the earth the the one that was a year ago that came much closer it wasn't potentially hazardous because it was quite small it was it was about 20 or 30 meters in diameter whereas this recent one actually both these recent ones uh were in that range 100 to 150 uh, meters in diameter and if those hit the earth that would cause a, a big amount of destruction if they hit london uh they destroy it out to sort of reading area so it, it would cause us a lot of damage but fortunately it went nowhere near us uh, and also if it hit london it wouldn't hurt cardiff so you know, well so. yes that's true uh so i mean i guess the the other point is that these asteroids do change their orbits slowly over time so that's the reason they're monitored so carefully yeah that's time. right and and that's one of the great things about astronomy is that there are things which almost never change within a human life lifespan but there are things like this which change on the daily basis that really do need to be monitored and watched very carefully uh, because they can pose a very real and present danger to us. 
Well, uh, I'm sure lots of people are keeping their eyes on the skies looking out for these things. Uh, now we can uh, we can move on to something else that happens uh, rather rather abruptly. And it's something related to what we talked about last month, and this is supernovae. So last month we talked about a supernova in the galaxy M82. Uh, this month we'll talk about a supernova in a galaxy that's much closer, in fact our own galaxy. Uh, it was a supernova that, although these happen relatively quickly, this supernova uh, was observed to go off about 350 years ago, so it went off a long time ago, and now all we see is the remnant. It's a remnant called Cassiopeia A in the constellation of Cassiopeia, that's what the name tells us, uh, and this is a beautiful object to look at through um, a very big optical telescope, so you need a big telescope to see it, but the latest uh, result is from an X-ray satellite called New Star. This is a satellite that was launched about 18 months ago and looks at very energetic X-rays, and what New Star has been able to see is the radioactive decay of titanium. Now the reason titanium is interesting is because this is produced in the explosion that took place in the supernova. Normally we see the hot outer shells of the star as they're blasted outwards and they look relatively spherical. This titanium however produced in the explosion appears to have a bubbly appearance and this tells us about what happened in the explosion itself. That when a, a, a massive star collapses to produce this supernova, the star sort of bubbles and froths around a bit before finally uh, exploding. So observing this titanium is giving us a real glimpse into what's going on inside a supernova explosion as it takes place, which is uh, something we've never really been able to do before. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting that it's titanium that's the radioactive thing, because I think but one of the things in, in a different type of supernova called a 1A, which involves two stars, uh, one of them is leaching material off a second star, is that uh, nickel is the the thing which is the radioactive it has a lot of um there's a lot of nickel it's radioactive and that's what you see glowing a lot of and uh, a friend of mine does research into this and uh, he said that for a, a very brief period if you converted all of that nickel into money it would amount to uh, about uh, one no nillion pounds which is uh, a one with uh, i think something like 38 zeros after it but it's only around for a fraction of a second so uh, uh, you'd have to spend it pretty quickly <laughs> the titanium lasts a little bit longer but it does decay over time and of course this really drives home that things like titanium and of course people have titanium in their artificial hips and so on it's, yeah. uh, it's a very useful uh, type of metal so it's producing these supernova explosions that's where the titanium on the earth essentially uh, originates from the cause of stars and the explosions of massive stars so uh, we really drive home that we really are made of stardust yeah well, particularly if you've got an artificial hip. Indeed. Now, of course, whether you're looking out for asteroids or supernovae, there's lots of other things uh, to observe. And if you really want to go out to observe, what better time to do it than National Astronomy Week? It takes place from the 1st to the 8th of March this year. And to find out more about it, who better to speak to than one of the organisers? I spoke to Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society, and I began by asking him, what was National Astronomy Week all about? Well, National Astronomy Week is very much a kind of combination of grassroots and professional astronomers um, aiming to kind of bring the science of astronomy to the general public and to engage as many people as possible with it over the, the course of the week. It's actually the seventh one of these. They've been running since 1981, and they take place every few years to mark some kind of event either in the night sky or some historical anniversary. So, no, I, I think it's really exciting. It's, so far, we've got something like uh, 168 events registered across the UK, and there seems to be a, you know, a surprisingly large amount of enthusiasm from all these local groups for taking part and from universities and people in any way involved in the subject. And so, so you guys at the RAS, and I know there are other institutions uh, involved behind it as well, are not necessarily running all the events, but you are coordinating it and, and putting a map online for, for where these events are taking place. 
That's exactly right. I mean, the aim of the RAS is, along with the, the Science and Technology Facilities Council, we're putting quite a bit of money into it as well, and other bodies like the BA, SPA, FAS, these national amateur groups, are really enabling local organizations and universities and so on to, to take part in this and encouraging them to register their events on a, on a large map of the UK. I mean, uh, exotically, with the, the furthest event, we, we debated whether it was technically part of the UK or not, probably strictly speaking not, but the, uh, the furthest one is right down in Gibraltar and the uh, furthest north one is in right up in northern Scotland. So we're pretty much covering the whole of anything you could define as the UK. Yeah, that's, that's quite a range, and and so these are these are sort of your the the ordinary or d- how how many of these are sort of the standard astronomical groups meeting, and how many of these are special events? Do you have a feel for that? Or? Um, I think in most cases, what we've got is um, amateur groups that have have decided to do something special for this week. Um, you know, they can get a small amount of publicity from us. In some cases, they can get small bits of grant money just to do simple things like uh, hire a church hall, for example, to provide somewhere dry if it decides to rain on the night they run an event. Um, but we've also got, uh, you know, universities, science centers, and observatories all involved as well. And so it's it's just really nice to see the kind of whole community working together to do this. Um, I can, you know, I can give you examples. I'm in uh, local to South Wales. There's one in uh, Dufferin Gardens in St. Nicholas, stargazing at a dark site, which will take place on the uh, 5th of March and that kind of thing is very very typical so you know turn up um, obviously can't guarantee the weather but you know um, it's accessible uh, come into the gardens and have a look and see what you can see and there'll be people there with telescopes to, to show you the night sky and I know Dufferin Gardens is where Cardiff Astronomical Society have their own little observatory and a telescope there as well so there should be a if it is clear there'll be a nice view of, uh, of what's on in the night sky which brings me on to the question of, of, of why this week what's in the night sky that made this particularly the 1st to 8th of March National Astronomy Week uh, I think there's a whole number of factors that lead to the choice of this particular week and indeed this particular year um, generally these events when they've happened have tended to coincide with major events in the night sky and the last one that was really considered to be a good model for that was the close opposition of Mars back in 2003 when Mars was at its closest to the Earth for 60,000 years. Now that sounds very dramatic and it was certainly rare it was only a little tiny bit closer than it had been you know 20 years ago before that but the point was it provided a really nice opportunity and with Jupiter it's you know unusually high in the night sky as seen in the northern hemisphere it also being March is slightly warmer than trying to do the same thing in January so we hope that we'll be able to get a, a few more people outside for that reason and that's really the kind of thinking behind it just convenience and, and finding a nice event and, and Jupiter is something as well that I think whilst people probably have noticed a bright star in the night sky they'll look what they think is a star in the night sky they look up and they say oh that's a bright object and you know people like the RAS then get letters saying I've seen this strange thing very few people have probably actually looked at it through a telescope seen the moons and seen the, the weather systems and cloud belts and great red spot that you can see really quite easily on its uh, on, I say on its surface at the top of its atmosphere. I don't know there's, there's sort of an observing challenge for anyone who does do observing on the website to uh, to make some observations of, of Jupiter's moons relating to the speed of light what can you tell us about that? Yeah this is a, a repetition of uh, Ole Roma's experiment back in seven, uh, 1676 and he noticed that there was a delay in the eclipse of Jupiter's moons. Now, the eclipses of the moons happen when they move into the shadow of Jupiter's. And what he realized right back in the 17th century was there's a delay in those and that the predictions were away from where they should have been. And he understood that was because light takes a finite amount of time to travel from Jupiter to the Earth when, when you see it. And, you know, it's, not, it's of the order of um, minutes, so it's plenty of time to 
actually measure it. And the challenge is to repeat this and to try and time things, say, to the second and so on, and see if you can actually get a measurement of the speed of light. So you're repeating science of the 17th century, but doing it in the 21st. And I suspect that it will be not a trivial thing to do. It's completely possible, but it will demonstrate really just how good the scientists 400 years ago really were. The thing that astonishes me about that time is the dedication and and the patience uh, to go and do this. Exactly. I mean, the fact that, you know, that they were using, uh, you know, in the 1670s, the astronomers would have been using telescopes that were really, really far, far worse than anything that's easily available today, certainly much less convenient to use. And yet they were able to do this kind of thing, to make this kind of key scientific discoveries. So it does, I, I guess, uh, demonstrate that you're right, that a lot of science is very painstaking. You get, I suppose you get the impression in films and so on that it's sort of, oh, you're sitting down and then you recur, suddenly there's this major discovery and it's all effortless. Actually, one of the realisations is there's a lot of grind as well and I think Roma's experiment really demonstrates that. Well it's a, a great experiment to try and replicate and if you do want to go to one of these events if, if people want to visit them Robert where, where can they go to find out more information? Well the main website is uh, www.astronomyweek.org.uk and on that you'll find not only a map of events a calendar of events but also quite a lot of information about the planets as well information on contacting the organisers you can ask the expert questions about Jupiter too and uh, Really, there's lots of resources of all kinds there to help you enjoy the week. Well, National Astronomy Week certainly should be exciting for, for all involved. Uh, in the meantime, for the whole of March, we can look at what's in the night sky. So with me again, Hugh Lang. Welcome back, Hugh. Hello, Chris. Whatever time you go out, you can almost be guaranteed a planet in the sky, can't you, at the moment? That's right. There are quite a few over the uh, the coming month. Uh, obviously, Jupiter is still nice and bright, high in the sky uh, and easily seen. Uh, slightly later, we have Mars rising in the east, followed by Saturn. And of course, in the morning, there's this brilliant Venus, which is low in the southeast, but it can't be missed. It's like a flying saucer. Excellent. <laughs> we should point out it's not a flying saucer, so don't send in Correct. those emails, please. Uh, so, whatever time you go out, there's a bright planet somewhere That's right. uh, in the sky <clears throat> Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, or Venus. Now, of course, with Jupiter, there's an observing challenge for National Astronomy Week, which is to measure the times of the eclipses of its moons. Now, this sounds like something that you need a lot of equipment for, but in fact, you don't, do you? No, you can get away with fairly basic equipment. You could be able to, well, just about be able to do the eclipses with a reasonably medium medium powerless 10 by 50 binoculars should be okay the important thing is that they're on a mount everything needs to be very very stable the other things you need of course are uh, an accurate clock probably a synchronized to an atomic clock somewhere off the off the computer or, a speaking or maybe clock a speaking or... clock okay uh and a stopwatch should probably be very helpful as well obviously you have a slightly uh, larger optical instrument a small telescope it would make it easier to actually look at the actual ingress into transit and egress out of transit of the moons of course when you actually want to uh, make the timing it should be the last point of contact on ingress and the first point of contact coming out so that's the when ingress. it finally disappears completely or when it first reappears that's at all, correct right? and of course what we're observing here is the the moons of jupiter go into jupiter's shadow you're essentially seeing a little bright point of light disappear over the course of a couple of minutes as it takes a little while to get into the that's shadow. that's right so you don't need a lot of equipment to do that so if you, if you do fancy uh, there's an observing form uh, to log your observations on the national astronomy website so i know what they're what they're trying to do is to see whether we can get a more accurate measurement of the speed of light yes. than old roma did back in the 17th century but using the same method and of course, there's not just this observing challenge. There's also 
loads of events all over the UK, but specifically in Wales and Cardiff in, in particular, uh, what have we got going on? Okay, well, in Cardiff in particular, we have two main events. Uh, one will be the Stargazing at the Dark Site, which will be held at Dufferin Gardens. That's on the Wednesday, the 5th of March. And then on the 6th of March, we have a meeting in Cardiff University, and the title of the uh, talk will be The Changing Face of Astronomy by Guy Hurst. And of course, at the same time, Chris, you'll be down in the bay with some telescopes. Uh, yes, we're hoping to take telescopes down to the bay on Thursday, the 6th of March, to observe the Moon and Jupiter. And if the weather's bad, we'll postpone to Friday the 7th, but uh, that's you know, we have to deal with the weather as it comes. Yes, and for a few other members that may not be spattered in Cardiff, we have a, uh, a, a Swansea Star Party meeting on the 7th. And there are a couple of other places as well. There's a, there's a meeting in Fishguard and another one near Wrexham, uh, which pretty well covers Wales. Uh, you'll find all the information on the National Astronomy Week site. And if you want more details of observing, you can go to the Cardiff Astronomical Society website, cardiffastronomicalsociety.org. Uh, and that site again for the National Astronomy Week is www.astronomyweek.org.uk. And good luck for all those observers.